This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. There are so many Abraham Lincolns. There is the ruthless Lincoln willing to suspend habeas corpus and who as president presided over record levels of bloodshed on American soil. There is a political opportunist Lincoln who declined to take the bold stand against the know-nothings that some of his contemporary did, Lincoln preferring to let the movement implode with much, without much action on Lincoln's part. Lincoln also famously hung back from outright abolitionism for decades, believing that the time was not yet ripe for freeing the slaves. There is a Lincoln who exercised presidential power to an extent that made Andrew Jackson look meek by comparison. There is a progressive Lincoln who saw in him a pioneering backer-in-chief of big government programs, such as the creation of land-grant colleges and big infrastructure spending, such as on a Pacific Railroad. There is the Lincoln who supposedly lorded it over Congress like some mafia kingpin demanding fealty and no questions asked. There is the Lincoln as the leader of the so-called Second American Revolution, who, by destroying the quasi-feudal Southern social system and passing landmark economic le- legislation, drastically reshaped America. Not so fast, says John D. Schaff in his 2019 book, Abraham Lincoln's Statesmanship and the Limits of Liberal Democracy. Rather than smashing societal structures, willy- structures willy-nilly and wielding presidential power like a bludgeon, Schaff's Lincoln was far more deferential to Congress than many of us realized. Shaw fascinatingly shows how Lincoln's Whig allegiances and distrust of autocratic figures like Jackson and Lincoln's own background as a legislator at the state and national level shape his presidency and governing preferences. And far from being a proto-New Dealer, Shaw's Lincoln was much more preoccupied with sound money than their progressives, making him seem more like a McKinley or Hamilton than an FDR. Anyone interested in American government, the presidency, Congress, and the mainly domestic aspects of Lincoln's presidency should read this book. There is even an intriguing comparison of Lincoln's ideas with those of the Catholic-associated economic theory of distributism. And for those who long for an account of a harmony-seeking governing style will find this a congenial read. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with John D. Schaff, author of the 2019 book, Abraham Lincoln's Statesmanship and the Limits of Liberal Democracy. Thank you for joining us today, John. Thanks for having me, Hope. It's an honor to be here. Well, I'm delighted. Well, let's get started. One of the most fascinating aspects of your book, it seems to me, John, is that you were able to demonstrate how eclectic Abraham Lincoln's thinking was in terms of his own personal political political philosophy. In the book, it seems to me, you try to provide some framework to what strikes me as often a hodgepodge of ideas on Lincoln's part. To wit, he definitely drew on the ideas of freedom and equality of the Declaration of Independence. He drew from Madison a a distrustful of too powerful an executive branch and on Madison's belief in the primacy of Congress. 
This latter belief was bolstered by the distrust of Lincoln's Whig party of Andrew Jackson and James Polk. Conversely, though, Lincoln seems to have been at one with Jefferson's arch enemy, Alexander Hamilton, when it came to the importance of a strong national banking system. And Lincoln used biblical language a good deal, but that seems to be more of a case of Lincoln employing the rhetoric of the Bible to strengthen the case for equality and the inherent dignity of every person that seems to, be, have, that seems to have been one of his core beliefs rather than growing out of his own Christianity, which you argue was far from orthodox in the first place. Could you tell us a bit about Lincoln's intellectual grounding, which is quite uh, extensive, before we get to his actual policy positions? Yes, it's, Lincoln is a conundrum in this sense, in that unlike you know, many of the figures that you mentioned, especially you know, from the founding, especially, you know, who you, know, you talk about someone like James Madison coming out of what was then the College of New Jersey, what we now call Princeton, or Hamilton coming out of Columbia, or Jefferson out of William and Mary in Virginia, where they had, where they had their own little gurus, their, the, the people who really influenced them, and they, and they are formally educated men who have a distinct ideology that you can sort of trace uh, back to their college years and then that, how that develops over their adult lives. Lincoln, of course, was famously an uneducated man in the sense of formal education. Um, as he himself said, he had, you know, he had less than two years of formal education. Um, he never went to college. Uh, this was a day when, of course, he was a lawyer. You could be a lawyer without going to law school. Uh, the way you became a lawyer in his day was through an apprenticeship. And so instead of going to, you know, University of Illinois Law School, he simply joined a firm, so to speak, got, he uh, was an apprentice and learned the law sort of by doing it. Uh, so he doesn't have a formal, if you will, a kind of intellectual background. His background, I would say, is probably more practical. And Lincoln, uh, at a young age, uh, was turned off by populism, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and so he was, uh, at a relatively young age, he was attracted to the Whig party, which you know, we'll probably talk about I I at some length, um, partially because I think his, he, uh, this is uh, being rebellious against his father, right? This is uh, kind of an old story, maybe one of the oldest stories is, is uh, his father was an uneducated kind of a uh, fiery Calvinist, uh, Jacksonian, Lincoln uh, rebelled against that, uh, joined uh, Henry Clay's Whig Party. And the Whig Party defined itself in two senses, some of which uh, you've alluded to already. One is the Whig Party gets its name and its, its own sort of uh, governing ethos out of the English Whig Party, which was the anti-Crown Party. So the Whigs call themselves the Whigs because they were opposed to Andrew Jackson's presidency and what they saw as the aggrandizement of presidential power by Jackson to the extent. No, there's I'm, a. I'm so oh, glad you mentioned yeah, that because I learned that from I learned that from your book. I did. Nope. I never knew the origin of the word Whig, and I, yep. I learned that from your book. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, and so there's there's a famous political cartoon. Uh, of King Andrew the First, uh, it's Andrew Jackson wrapped up in a, a, a robe. In fact, he doesn't look. If people have seen Hamilton, he doesn't look that different from the King George character in Hamilton. He's got the big robe on and the big crown. Uh, and I was, this is meant to be derogatory uh, that Jackson acts like a monarch. So the Whig Party 
that Jacks or that excuse me Lincoln cut his teeth in was an anti-presidential power party. But it was also as far as public policy goes though, it was sort of an inheritor of the Hamiltonian uh, tradition of strong government, active government, especially government active in the promotion of economic activity. So it would have been the power, uh, the party of the you might uh, the small businessman, the entrepreneur, uh, the kind of the industrious middle class, uh, and. Uh, the Whig Party was for things like internal improvements, uh, national banks, uh, improvements of rivers and harbors, uh, a tariff to promote domestic uh, domestic industry. And this is really where Lincoln's political education comes from, is being active in, uh, in Whig politics. Probably more intellectually is, again, Lincoln was not formally educated. Uh, but he was, by the standards of our day, a relatively educated person. In fact, I would say in a lot of ways, despite not having very much schooling, he was better educated than most of our politicians are today, mostly because Lincoln was a vociferous reader. Uh, I think he resembles Harry Truman in that. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Harry Truman, our last president to not have a college degree, uh, but was a guy who read a lot. And so Lincoln, I would not say uh, he read very widely, but what he did read, he read with depth. And so, for example, Lincoln did read a lot on political economy. And so he had a definite view of, of political economics. He also was deeply learned in Shakespeare, hmm. um, Especially a man, there's a, a man of also of little education, probably exactly. had more education than Lincoln had, actually. Yeah. And and so Lincoln, the, you know, there's a, a famous letter he wrote to uh, a great Shakespearean actor of his day. And he lists a hand. Again, he didn't read a lot of Shakespeare, but there are about about six or seven plays that Lincoln read over and over again. And he, he could recite entire scenes from memory. Um and he was a great admirer, of, especially of, you might say, the political plays of Shakespeare, like Hamlet and Macbeth and Richard III. And you can see in those plays this concern about the corruption of power and how power can corrupt people and that, 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 that yearning for power, how it, how it can damage the soul, so to speak. Uh, the other thing he knew very well, again, as, as you sort of have alluded to in your, in your, in your introduction, is Lincoln whatever his religious beliefs were, and, and I don't think that they were uh, Orthodox Christianity by any means, but he knew his Bible backwards and forwards. And I think that the poetry of the King James Bible really influenced Lincoln and how he thought about things, the language he used, and so much the, of the power of Lincoln is in his language. And I think he gets a lot of that from uh, a deep knowledge of both Shakespeare and the, the King James Bible. Hmm. And, and how about his reading in the founding fathers? Did they, there, there was some controversy whether he read Madison's notes and. The thing, you know, it, it's obvious he knew something because he obviously knows some of Jefferson's works very well in, in the Cooper union address of February, 1860, 
he uh, went back and he clearly read some of the notes of Madison about about uh, uh, from the Constitutional Convention. Um, and he went back and he looked at how uh, members of the founding generation voted regarding slavery in the first couple Congresses, especially the Congress. He's very interested in the Cooper Union address on how people voted on the Northwest Ordinance when that was um, uh, reconstituted under the new constitution. Uh, uh, how did the people who voted on the constitution, who were also in Congress, in the, the, the first Congress, how did they vote on the banning of slavery in the Northwest Territories, what was then the Northwest? Um, uh, so he clearly knew something of the founders, uh, though I, I don't know how deeply he, for one thing, you know, some of that stuff wasn't available the way the way it is today. That we they, that it wasn't wasn't all available uh, the way we have now. But uh, he certainly knew his Jefferson very well. He had some idea of the constitutional of the constitutional debates, and that very much informed you know. And everybody at the time would have known Washington's farewell address, for example. Everybody would have known that uh, in his day. It would have been almost up there with uh, the Declaration of Independence as the kind of thing that every schoolboy or schoolgirl would have memorized certain passages from. Uh, and so Lincoln, I think, is firmly grounded in uh, the ideas of the American founding. Hmm. Well, one, one aspect of your book that's really key is you, is you emphasize Lincoln's political prudence. And I'd like to mm-hmm. have you drill down a little bit on what that means. For example, um, he was very, sometimes I get a little impatient with him, with him as, a, as an individual because he was so cautious. And of course, I mean, he had to be because he wanted to, he wanted to be able to, to affect change and he couldn't do that if he was politically neutered from the get-go. But yeah. could you play that out? His prudence, for example, and his relations, his public comments or lack of them really on to, to very much to a very noticeable extent on the anti-immigration, anti-Catholic know-nothings yeah. versus... And 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 also his relatively slow, his prudence following from that, he didn't want to he didn't want to wreck his political career, and also he was very slow it, to join the Republican Party. He's regarded as a founder of it, but you point out that he, in a way he wasn't really a founder. He was very very wary of it at first, or cautious anyway. Yeah, relatively late to the game, uh, you mm-hmm. might say, in joining the Republican Party. Well, let's when we talk about prudence, first thing I guess we should do is define the term. And prudence is defined as using the right means to achieve a good end. And when you, when you go into your Aristotle, um, Aristotle divides um, uh, wisdom into two. There's theoretical wisdom. So how do we know what is right or wrong? That is a product of what we call theoretical wisdom. Right? We know this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. Then there's a second kind of wisdom that Aristotle calls practical wisdom or what we often translate as prudence. Uh, and I choose the term prudence as opposed to practical wisdom. Um, and practical wisdom is knowing now that we know what is good, how do we achieve that thing? And so it doesn't do you any good to have, shall we say, the right opinions if you don't know how to bring them into effect, so to speak. And this is married quite closely to a second ancient virtue, which is moderation. Mm -hmm. And moderation is defined 
uh, not by being a little bit of this or a little bit of that, what we often in our day call, we could call political centrism. Uh, moderation is having each good thing in its proper amount. And so, especially in the American context, when we look at politics, there are various good things that we're trying to promote. Uh, we believe in the good of equality. We believe in the good of natural right. We believe in the good of political consent. We believe in the good of liberty. And sometimes those things are at odds with each other. And so we have to balance all those competing goods or the, the, the good that we might talk about at some length, the good of the rule of law uh, is, is a fundamental good, the, the, the good of, of due process and the rule of law. So you put those two things together and I think those are the two great virtues of a statesman. And Lincoln, I think, had these things in, uh, in uh, great amounts. But certainly your own uh, frustration with Lincoln is a reasonable frustration because a prudent and wise um, uh, statesman will often frustrate us because we want to get things done. We want to see justice vindicated. And that balancing of good things and the thought about not just what do we want to achieve, but how we want to achieve it can frustrate us. Why can't we just you know, get to the end of the story, so to speak, uh, and, and not have to go through all the preliminaries? And so your invocation of the know-nothings is a good example of that. So the know-nothings are the so-called American party of kind of the mid-1850s. So the know-nothings arise just about as Lincoln is re-entering politics after sort of being in the wilderness, sort of like Churchill in his wilderness years. Uh, Lincoln had his own wilderness years in the early, once he left Congress in 1849, then he'd take about, he took about five years off to when uh, he kind of well, got back into politics might, in 1854. I might quibble with you a little bit on that because Churchill was very well known, whereas Lincoln was not sure as well yeah. known. It is, yeah, so I just wanted to make clear that, that he was yeah. his trajectory was from obscurity into sudden fame, whereas Churchill was famous early, early on. Is there is there is for, that correct? Lincoln, yeah, well, it's certainly true because when what we often call Churchill's wilderness years, these are years after he's already been like Lord of the Admiralty and uh, head of Exchequer. <laughs> Yeah. And had been, what, Home Secretary, I believe. So he'd already achieved these mm. things. And then it looked like his career was over. Mm. Whereas Lincoln looked like he was on the cusp of maybe becoming a major figure and then just sort of disappears. Like he, he gets into Congress and he thinks that maybe he can achieve something. And it's just sort of, it's, it's, uh, it, it dissipates rather quickly. Mm. Uh, yeah, one, one term, right? Yeah, only one term. Yeah. And then he got frustrated because he thought you know, that the, the Zachary Taylor uh, got elected president as a Whig. And Lincoln really thought that maybe he would get some position in the Taylor administration. And the best they could do was they offered him actually the governorship of Oregon, where you where you're currently. I at. did not know that. Uh, That's this interesting. Is true. Yeah, I didn't he, know that. They said, well, how do you want to be governor of Oregon? And his wife did not want to move halfway across the country to what was then the hinterlands. Um, and so he, he turned down the job and just went back to lawyering uh, hmm. until, as I say, when we get the repeal of the Missouri Compromise in 1854 in the Kansas-Nebraska Act. This is famously when Lincoln sort of re-enters politics and then becomes 
uh, more clearly Churchillian at this point, uh, perhaps. But uh, it, it's at that time that this party, this American party, uh, that we call the Know Nothings, because uh, the idea was the American Party was a kind of secret society. And if someone asked you about them and you were a member, you were supposed to say, like uh, like Sergeant Schultz and uh, Hogan's Hero, <laughs> I know nothing. Um, and which is why they get the nickname, the Know Nothings. Um, but this was the, the, the Know Nothings were an anti-immigrant party. Um, and... But on the other hand, they were also anti-slavery. Um, oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, they, they, so they were an anti-slave party, but also very strongly anti-immigrant. You can see that the consistency there is they didn't want any competition with white labor. And they saw slavery, especially as you as you look toward the West. Remember, the West in those days would mean places like Iowa or <laughs> Kansas, Nebraska, Minnesota, that's the West in these days, even though we're talking about a time when California was a state and Oregon, if, if it's not a state, was really close to being a state. Uh, I don't know what yeah, you 1859. Yeah, yeah. So it was about to become a state. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm talking about what today we would call the Middle West or the Plains uh, would have been the West. And so as people are pushing West to homestead, um, they want to keep that free for native white labor, right? This, you know, the, the term that we have today of nativist would have been very properly ascribed to the know-nothings, that a government for native Americans, which I don't mean American Indians, I mean white people born in America. And so immigrants in those days, it would have been especially Germans and Irish and mm-hmm. slaves were a competition with free white labor. So, so the anti-immigrant side of things is uh, uh, is sort of disreputable uh, in, in retrospect and to a certain degree at the time because there were leading uh, political figures of the time. So now we're moving into the era where the Whig Party is going away and the Republican Party is starting to supplant it. So you had leading Republicans at this point like William Seward who were very open in their denunciation of know-nothings and nativism. Whereas, as you indicate, uh, and I uh, allude to this a little bit in the, in the book, though I don't draw it out that much, Lincoln, at least publicly, was very equivocal uh, hmm. about the know-nothings. But we know that privately, Lincoln was opposed to the know nothings. There's a famous letter he wrote to his good friend Joshua Speed, where he says, "You know, we're going to start by saying, you know, we 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 don't believe in the black man. Then we're going to. It seems like we're adding to that. We don't believe in in the black man or immigrants or Catholics." And he says, "If you know, if it goes much beyond that, so I, I wh- why don't we just move to Russia, where we can take our despotism without alloy, right?" Uh, so it was clear he, he didn't like the know-nothings because he saw within their anti-immigrant, which along with that was, we were talking about Germans and Irish, an anti-Catholic attitude. Um, he didn't like it. But in public, he was very hesitant to say anything uh, that would seem too denunciatory of the know-nothings. And this is an example of, of prudence. For Lincoln... The main goal is to halt the spread of slavery and obviously ultimately the extinction of slavery. 
in this, the know nothings were his friend, right? Hmm. He thought we can build a coalition with know nothings uh, and we can make an anti-slavery coalition. And for what would it, what they wanted to do is to bring the know nothings into the Republican party, you know, in the 1856 election, the know nothings plus the Republicans with you know, John C. Fremont and the, uh, the know nothing or the American party candidate was former president Millard Fillmore. They got over 50% of the vote between the two of them, but they split the anti-Democrat vote, which would have, would have been James Buchanan. And so Buchanan became president. And so Lincoln sees if we can bring these two people together, these two parties together, we can have one big anti-slavery party. So why would I, you know, so I don't want to denounce the know-nothings and drive them away. In fact, one of the reasons why Lincoln became the Republican nominee in 1860 instead of, instead of William Seward is Seward had been too open in his denunciation of the know-nothings and former know-nothings who are now part of the Republican Party didn't like him. As well as he had, he had said some things about slavery uh, as well that were a little bit too close to abolitionism. And Lincoln had been more prudent in his, uh, in his language. The, the idea being here, if our goal is, what is the good thing we want? We want to get rid of slavery. And so what that means is we can't drive away natural allies on things that are of secondary importance maybe someday we get rid of slavery and now we can talk about things like anti-immigrant or anti-Catholic sentiment. But for the time being, to advance our cause, instead of remaining you know, pure in our ideals, because in Lincoln's private conviction was that the know-nothings were wrong. But in public, we, you know, we should have, he never spoke in favor of know-nothingism. He simply mm. refused to denounce it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, yeah, you make you make the point too that Seward had German constituents and Irish constituents as yeah. part of New York State, whereas Lincoln didn't have that that ability to play both sides of the street. He had to satisfy his his nativist constituency exactly. in yeah, Illinois. Yeah, because yeah, Seward, being from New York, obviously had a larger immigrant population in general. Then, of course, there was a large uh, Irish population in New York, as there is you no know, to, to this day, sort of stereotypically. Uh, there's a large Irish population there, and there was even in the 18 in the 1850s. And so Seward had a political incentive to not alienate the the Irish vote or even though broadly the Catholic vote, which would include at least some of the Germans. Whereas in Illinois, this wasn't as important uh, to Lincoln. And if anything, again, the, the the prudent move was to say nothing. Now, again, what that does, well, the reason that's prudence, hope, is that He's not cutting off an avenue. Like in the, he's not saying anything that would, that would um, tie him to a position that in the future he couldn't make a move against know-nothingism. Right? And 
at this mm-hmm. is so in the future he can make a move against no nothingism with without being accused of being a hypocrite because up to this point he had had no opinion on it and then in this sense he was actually proven right because what happens to no nothingism it simply disappears or really it gets it gets assimilated into the republican party which is what lincoln anticipated and and so a seward would have made that more difficult because seward was too on the record as being opposed to the the American Party and the in the nativists, whereas Lincoln was, let's look the other way for the time being on that because we have something more fundamental, a more obvious violation of founding ideals, and that's slavery. Let's focus on that first, and we'll you know we can deal with these other matters at some other time. With again, with without cutting off, uh, without halting any hope of any progress on that. You know, either Lincoln in the future or some future statesman um, would have plenty of uh, Lincoln was engaging in no rhetoric or no actions that would preclude a future statesman from doing something uh, uh, more uh, proactive against uh, no nothingism. Well, speaking of political parties disappearing, one of the fascinating uh, observations in your book is that you you point out that the, the Whig Party just basically just 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 um vanished or vaporized in a very short time and that you say that there's really no comparable example of that in terms of a party that had lasted for decades and had elected presidents unlike say the bullmost party which was just a theodore roosevelt's vehicle but but and lincoln lincoln was very reluctant you call him the wig in the white house could you refer to what why he continued to he, he wasn't a full-blown, you know, full-throated Republican, even later. I mean, never really was. I mean, you point out that he wasn't really a very gifted political party leader, which is fascinating because I was, I wonder if you could compare him to say Franklin Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson in that respect that, that they, or Reagan, they, they were very much the leaders of their party as well. And Lincoln was very aloof in that respect. Yep. Um, the, the one argument you, you could make um, is about parties disappearing is you might make an argument, um, which you noted to me, Hope, in an email uh, the other day of the Federalist Party uh, early in the Republic. That, so that, I, I think it, that there's a bit of an apples, oranges there because, you know, one thing, when does the Federalist Party emerge? Um, it's hard to date that because, of course, Washington was at least nominally nonpartisan. Uh, really, the only Federalist president we ever get is John Adams. And then shortly after, you know, when Adams gets elected in 1796, and then when he's defeated in 1800, the, the Federalist Party very quickly disappears, partially because Alexander Hamilton disappears when he gets, uh, mm-hmm. gets killed in 1804. Um, and by certainly, but like by 1808, the Federalist Party is barely competitive and is, is competitive nowhere outside of New England. Mm. Uh, but the but the Whig Party, on the other hand, you know, the Whig Party emerges roughly in uh, you know the mid 1830s. The first kind of Whig presidential candidate is Henry Clay in you know in 1832. Though I'm now trying to think if he actually took on the Whig appellation uh, at that point. Um, uh, but when he loses to Jackson, but you know, a, a Whig was elected president in uh, 1840. A, a Whig was elected president in 1848. The Whigs had the misfortune of uh, electing presidents who died. Uh, very, <laughs> the only two Whigs ever elected president both died in office. I'm talking about William Henry Harrison and then 
Zachary Taylor, uh, uh, both who had uh, extraordinarily unimpressive vice presidents uh, who took over for them. Um, but nonetheless, oh, they at times they controlled um, uh, the House of Representatives. They elected senators. And so they had a, they had a good like 15 to 20 year run. And you know, of course, you know, Winfield Scott uh, was their last uh, presidential, real presidential nominee in 1852. Did decently in the popular vote, but not very well in the electoral college vote. But you, know, you, you look at it this way. In 1848, the Whigs elect a president of the United States. That's Zachary Taylor. And within six, seven years, the party really doesn't exist anymore. That's fascinating. Right? It's, 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 it's gone. And it tells you something about the era in, in which they lived, in which they were living, is that obviously the, the, what's happening is the tumult over slavery becomes untenable. When you have the, the, the compromises of 1850 and then the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, what the Whig Party had been doing for you know, roughly the previous, say, 15 years or so, is it been playing this balance, balancing act of sort of being one thing in the North and one thing in the South. And by, you know, certainly by 1854, 1855, the idea that a political party could try to play both sides of the slavery issue really was not possible, right? And that's when you see this big realignment and Southern Whigs, for all intents and purposes, become aligned with the Democratic Party. The Northern Whigs become aligned with a newly emerging political party of the Republicans. And it's sort of like the, the anti-slavery forces of the North needed something to coalesce around. So you had anti-slavery Democrats, you had anti-slavery Whigs. And what maybe what they needed to do was sort of like to, to begin anew in a new entity. And that is what really emerges uh, in, in, in its beginning uh, is born as uh, an anti-Kansas Kansas-Nebraska party, uh, kind of an anti-Stephen Douglas, anti-Kansas-Nebraska Act party, and that's the Republican Party. Then you know, what, what, what you're um, noting, Hope, is that, and we, you know, we talked about this earlier, is that, that Lincoln is pretty late to that party. Um, as late as you know, 1856, which I realize is really only two years after the formation of the Republican Party, but almost every other Whig in the country especially, you know, in the North, for sure, had already thrown its lot in, uh, his lot in with the Republican Party. And mm -hmm. Lincoln was still kind of, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You know, they, the, the, the Illinois Republican Party sort of like put him on a governing board and he's like, well, I'm not really even a Republican yet. I don't really know where I'm at. Um, and he's really that, late. That shows his, his ability, I mean, that, that they recognized his ability and his growing stature. Oh, sure. Thought, because yeah. Certainly. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, certainly within Illinois, Lincoln was a, a figure, right? He really was a workhorse for the Whig Party and was was a good local political organizer. Um, but he was but because he was so tied to that Whig Party uh, and, you know, the the memory of Henry Clay was so important to him. I think he was very cautious about leaping onto something new, though once he took the leap, he took the leap. Um, 
you know, one, he was, thing, one thing I oh, think is, is, well, I was just going to say one thing that's kind of fascinating about him is that he was almost like a proto-public intellectual because a lot of, many of his addresses were not necessarily political events. They were, you talk about a series of lectures he gave on technology and science, for example, yeah. and he was just a, a, a public speaker before Chautauqua and that kind of era. But Well, yeah, you know, it, obviously you're, the one of the interesting things about Lincoln is that you know, even you know, we're talking about those those people from the founding era that we talked about. Um, unlike them, you know, uh, Lincoln wrote virtually nothing. Um, almost everything we have of him is public oratory. Now, in some cases, we have that because he obviously wrote out the speech, and we will have his notes of that. Uh, in many cases, uh, the Lincoln Douglas debates are the are the best example. What we have are journalistic reports on what Lincoln said. Uh, we might not have his actual language, right? Because well, well, Lincoln. And, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to say, I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but your book was so full of things that I didn't know that I just keep interjecting. But one of the things you make the point, and he didn't leave. He didn't leave writing at this period, but during during his president, he preferred not to speak and before Congress, and he preferred to use written communications, which was a, a turn a turnabout. Well, which was the practice of the time, you know, oh, okay. between b- between uh, Thomas Jefferson and Woodrow Wilson, uh, not a single president appeared in Congress. Right? They did not give speeches in Congress. You know, instead of nowadays, we have the State of the Union address, which is uh, almost become a, you know, it's really a TV event. Uh, and that starts again uh, with Woodrow Wilson uh, reinstituted uh, both Washington and Adams. John Adams uh, had given the State of the Union address as an address to Congress. Jefferson stopped that. He started what we what became known then as the annual message, which was written out. And public oratory by presidents was relatively rare in the 19th century, mostly because there was a high wariness about presidents being uh, popular leaders. And so there was such anxiety about demagoguery and the idea that the president would aggrandize himself. It's sort of going back to what we're saying about Jackson, why some people were so nervous about Jackson is this idea that the president could emerge as a, as a proto Caesar, um, as someone who could, who could become a, a, a kind of a, a leader of the people, rally the people and act as the representative of the people and dominate Congress. The convention of the time was that presidents rarely spoke in public. Uh, when they did speak in public, they tended to speak in generalities uh, presidents virtually never took public positions on public policy. Uh, when you ran for president, you didn't actually run for president. Uh, you ran through uh, surrogates. You know, presidents did not go out and you know, um, you know, the way we see it today in our election year. And Hope and I are talking on election day uh, 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 of 2020. You know, we you know having rallies. Uh, certainly, Mr. Trump is doing this. Biden, for all sorts of reasons, is is not doing this as much. But the idea that a president would go out and give do rallies or even do television ads, I realize part of that is a technology thing. But the idea that even even Joe, you know, Joe Biden, who's not campaigning as much, still said goes out there and says, vote for me in the 19th century. That was verboten. No presidential candidate would go out and just so gratuitously say, vote for me. 
you had other people do it for you, right? You had political parties that did it for you. So the president didn't have to do that. So they're very wary of the president coming off as a demagogue or as a, as a kind of popular leader. And so when Lincoln emerges uh, in, you know, in, in the late 1850s, right, what we get is public oratory, not something that's written down. So yeah, to the extent that he's a public intellectual, it's really through oratory. So you mentioned things like he had this uh, somewhat goofy uh, lecture that he gave in 1859. He, he apparently gave this in various places. Uh, and it comes down to us in sort of scraps that we've sort of put together. We can sort of make one speech out of this, uh, even though we don't really have one complete whole of it. Uh, this, this lecture on discoveries and inventions. You see it you know, in 1858, I'm going to think it was 58 or 59, it must have been 59 when he gave his uh, uh, Wisconsin Agricultural Address at the uh, State Fair in, uh, in Wisconsin. It was an address, but deals with all sorts of things. Um, and he, he, only obliquely is it, is it about slavery. It's really a defense of free labor, which of course implicates slavery. But he's sort of you know, this, this man of ideas but those ideas get expressed in oratory rather than written word. But then once he becomes present, the convention is not to speak that much. You know, uh, the, the number I have in the book is that in Lincoln's presidency, he probably gave a right around 100 speeches. But even most of those were mostly, you know, in those days, they did these serenades. You know, a group would show up at the White House and say, yay, President Lincoln. And Lincoln would go out on a balcony and say, hi, how you doing? You know, and, you know, you count that as a speech when he, you know, he gives like a paragraph address to these people um, that, you know, you'd call a serenade. But you add that all up, about 100 presidential speeches by Lincoln. Well, Barack Obama in one year, we're talking about four plus years for Lincoln. In Barack Obama's first year as president, he gave 699 speeches that were <laughs> formal enough to require a teleprompter. He gave about 1,400 public addresses, but 699, let's call it 700 uh, speeches that were formal enough that he, he used a teleprompter. That's in one year. And that tells you the difference in the amount of public oratory where uh, in the 19th century, in Lincoln's day, the way the president communicated was in writing, and it was usually directed towards Congress. And so we would say that presidential rhetoric of the 19th century was public and that you know, anybody could read it. You know, it's not like it was private. It was public speech, but it wasn't popular speech. It wasn't directed towards the people. It was directed towards Congress or some uh, official entity as opposed to directed toward the people trying to shape the people. Uh, it was directed towards, uh, towards Congress. Well, well, getting back to Lincoln's uh, public public utterances before he was president, you made the fascinating point, which I also didn't know, that after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he basically spoke on nothing in public political political forums except slavery, whereas the Republican Party was also pushing, he was kind of their point man on slavery and laying the moral basis, right, that everybody, all the other Republicans were also discussing, oh, homesteading and railroad fund funding for infrastructure and so forth. But Lincoln was, you are the moral case man. You are making, making, making our, our, our fundamental arguments from a... Yeah, well, I, I think what you can see, there's a shift 
in Lincoln. So from like 1854, when he, again, when he re-enters politics, up through the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, virtually everything Lincoln has to say is about slavery. And in some ways, I think that's probably true of the Republican Party. Is oh, that really? It was really known as the anti-slave party. But, but what happens, right? So for one thing, you know, the election of 1856 taught the Republicans something, which is namely the, the big problem they had in 1856. Uh, here, 1856 is sort of going to be like the year 2000. Pennsylvania is everything. Um, and so they needed to win Pennsylvania. You know, in 1856, the Democrats had very shrewdly uh, nominated James Buchanan, who was from Pennsylvania, uh, and you know, and and they they won the state. And the Republicans figure that we can't just be an anti-slavery party; we have to talk about other things. Now, Lincoln himself, now again, up through 1858, so obviously now we're going two years after the 56 election, he's focusing on slavery. And obviously, if, if you look at, you know, there's seven Lincoln-Douglas debates, they're you know, almost unbelievable from the point of view of you know, modern political discourse. Can you imagine any candidates, whether it's our presidential candidates or you no, know, any any senatorial candidates. Of course, that was a Senate election. Any senatorial candidates uh, in 2020, giving having seven debates, uh, each of them going uh, two hours, right? Two hour debates without notes, uh, where you know the way they arrange those debates is um, the first person would talk for an hour an hour straight. The second person, I got to think maybe these were three hour debates. The second person goes for and an, gets an hour and a half rebuttal. And then the mm. first person gets to, gets to go back for another 30 minutes. So both, yeah, so both people get an hour and a half. So three hour debates. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine any of our candidates being able to talk for an hour straight coherently? Uh, and these guys did. And when you look at those debates, there is almost nothing they talk about other than slavery. Uh, there is some issue. There's one debate where Lincoln tried to uh, ascribe a kind of conspiracy to Link, uh, to Douglas. And uh, that really, I think that was the second debate and it went over kind of like a lead balloon and he never went back to that. Uh, hmm. But it's really um, uh, no, 95% of what they talk about is slavery and slavery only. But as you approach the 1860 election, I think you know, Republicans know they have to broaden their appeal. And so if you look at the, the Republican platform of 1860, you have things like advocacy of tariffs, and that is directed precisely at Pennsylvania. Again, some things in 2020 are the same. <laughs> Pennsylvania was a coal-producing state. They, they wanted protective tariffs. It was an industrial state. Uh, they liked the idea of protective tariffs. And so Republicans put that in their platform to try to win the Pennsylvania vote. Things like Homestead Act and land-grant colleges, right? This is an appeal to Western states. Um, uh, the idea of Western expansion, that, that to expand the appeal of the party beyond anti-slavery, anti-slavery, anti-slavery. And it might be why 
Lincoln in 1859 is giving addresses on, like say, agriculture and uh, really about free labor in Wisconsin. And then this discoveries and inventions thing, which really is hard to place. But it, it, it is fair to say that Lincoln does not overtly talk about these other issues all that much, if at all, leading up to that election of 1860. If anything, it's it's the Republican Party intelligentsia or the calling yeah. them the intelligentsia is probably too much of a compliment. Uh, the <laughs> operatives, the political operatives of the Republican Party. Uh, no, we've got to broaden our appeal. So we got to talk about Western expansion, Western development, as well as protection of Eastern industry. And that really is the change. And it is fair to say Lincoln certainly was not on the forefront of that, although there's no indication he opposed any of it. In fact, he probably supported all of it. He just didn't talk about it that much. You're right. Almost all of it. What's his big campaign address, the extent they had campaign addresses back then? It's the Cooper Union address in February of 1860. And that is almost exclusively about the expansion of slavery and Congress's authority over slavery. He said that was the, pres- the speech that made me president, right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one, one of the things in, in terms of his the discussion of slavery is that he also phrased it, okay, maybe you, maybe you don't care about slavery, but you should care about democracy. And that he felt that, could you talk about that, that he was really uh, furious. Uh, he, felt, he thought that, that Douglas was being intellectually dishonest and besmirching the whole concept of, of democracy. And also you talk about natural rights in the book. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about the difference between natural, is there, is there a difference between natural rights and natural law, for example? And, okay. and what, and what, and what, what didn't, how, it, it seems to, to some people that, well, popular sovereignty was democracy at its finest. That's what Douglas was arguing. And Lincoln was saying, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a perversion of the whole idea. All right. Well, let's talk about rights and democracy first. And I can talk a little bit about, because uh, I think there is a difference between natural rights and natural law, even though some people today use those terms interchangeably. I think that's probably uh, it, that's probably mis- an exaggeration. I don't think it's entirely wrong, but it's but I think we should be more precise. Well, the relationship between rights and democracy. Right. Um, if you go back to Lincoln. Lincoln's uh, uh, debates with Stephen Douglas, right? What is the essential debate about? Um, Douglas was an advocate of something called popular sovereignty. And the idea is, is that as we incorporate new states, as the United States is moving west, we've got territories, we want them to become states, when we take this Western territory, make it into official territories, kind of territory with a capital T, uh, like Kansas territory or Dakota territory, that sort of thing. So now it's got an official status under under federal law that the people who live there should be able to vote slavery up or down or they see fit as they see fit. And this, of course, with the Kansas Nebraska Act, part of the Kansas Nebraska Act was a repeal of the Missouri Compromise of 1820. The Missouri Compromise said, as they sort of divided up, uh, started to incorporate the Louisiana Purchase, all territory north of 34 degrees 30 north, right? Everything north of that would be free. Everything south of that could have slavery. 
if people are wondering that it's actually the southern border of the current state of Missouri. And so mm. Missouri is the one exception to the banning of slavery because Missouri was a slave state, but everything else north of that, uh, that border was to be free. Was, there's supposed to be no slavery uh, in those federal territories. Well, Douglas wants to repeal that in 1854 with the Kansas-Nebraska Act and, and says the people who live in these territories, in this case, Kansas territory, which would become Kansas and Nebraska, um, uh, they should be allowed to vote themselves whether to allow slavery or not. And that is true democracy. Right. And this, of course, has a certain amount of sense to it. As you know, I, I said before, one of the goods that we're trying to protect in uh, American democracy is the good of consent. And so Douglas is appealing to the consent of the governed. Just let the people who live there decide, should we have slavery, should we not? And he called that popular sovereignty. Lincoln, of course, objects to this. And his objection is that, first of all, he doesn't. he thinks that old compromises should be respected. And he doesn't like the innovation that that. Douglas is introducing, why can't we let the old compromise stand? But really, more to the point is he sees this as an affront to natural rights, right? So obviously, a natural right is a right we have by nature. By nature of being a human being, we have these characteristics about ourselves that no one can justly violate. And so when we look at the Declaration of Independence, um, what, what Lincoln called the apple of gold uh, and, and the governing act, the axioms of democracy, he called uh, the Declaration of Independence. What he looks at is, one, natural equality. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So there is an argument about human nature there and that we are naturally equal. All people are equal and um and that they are endowed with certain rights. And among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So that's the idea of natural rights. You have them simply by virtue of being a human being, right? They're yours by nature. They are not given to you by government, by tradition, by class status, that whatever differences we have, whatever equalities, inequalities we have, and we all know there are, there are inequalities. Some people are rich, some people are poor, some people are smart, some people are dumb, uh, some people are clever, some people aren't, some people are strong, some people are weak. Whatever those inequalities are, they don't translate into getting more of the right to life, more of the right to liberty, more of the right to pursue happiness. And slavery, of course, is a violation of all three of those rights. And in, 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 in addition, kind of the fourth right that was important to the American founding but isn't articulated in the Declaration, and that's the right to property, including the right to property in yourself. Uh, to own yourself. Um, and so Lincoln is saying, we don't take these natural rights and leave them up to a vote. We don't vote whether to enslave people because this is a natural injustice. And this is something which we cannot properly consent to. Mm -hmm. um, and so but what he says, because these are the axioms of democracy, if you start violating natural rights, Really, what you are doing is undermining democracy itself. Democracy functions to promote rights. Even you know, if we continue with our Declaration of Independence, where it says, um, uh, among these are the rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And what's the next line? 
and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. The purpose of American government is to secure these rights. And we cannot then leave these rights up to a vote. And so the attitude of Douglas is that when he, you know, Douglas's stated position on slavery was, I don't care. Th- those are his words. Mm-hmm. A don't care policy. And Lincoln is saying, how can you not care about something which is a fundamental violation of natural rights? And, and you cannot have democracy when we see democracy as being one group of people can tyrannize over another group of people. That is not democracy. That is just despotism or tyranny. And so to have a good, decent democracy, you have to have a democracy which is grounded in a notion of the natural, inviolable rights of the individual human being. And we might make some compromises with that, um, but we can't give up the principle. And Douglas was too willing to give up the principle of natural rights. Well, and Lincoln also, if, I, if, if, if I'll ask you, if you can help me with this point, that he, he said, not, aside from the abstract argument about justice and natural rights, that Lincoln says, it's not working. It's not workable. People are going to be at, at knife's edge in Kansas. They're killing each other. That, yeah. that, or they will. So it's, 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 not, it's not a pragmatic policy either, that popular sovereignty is, is, simply, so, is simply ineffective. Right? Yeah. So, here, I mean, I'll, I'll give, uh, let's give a, I do this in the book. You know, one of the books that really influenced me and has influenced a lot of Lincoln scholars um, is Harry Jaffa's Crisis of the House Divided, which I can highly recommend to anyone out there who is interested in Lincoln's political thought. It probably is the great book. There's no probably to it. It is the great book on Lincoln's political thought. And one of the things that Jaffa does is the first part of that book is he gives Douglas's view the best reading he possibly can. And when you get at the end of the Douglas section of Jaffa's book, you go, wow, Jaffa was right. Or I'm sorry, Douglas was right. Lincoln was wrong. And then you read the rest of the book and Jaffa defends Lincoln. And you figure out why Lincoln was right. But, but let's, give, let's give Douglas's due, right? And I do this in the book. I give, here's the best case scenario to Stephen Douglas. And one of his arguments was, listen, slavery is a kind of labor which is uh, more attuned to the kind of agriculture they have in the South and very labor-intensive agriculture in cotton and tobacco. The kind of um, uh, labor that is likely to occur in the Western states is kind of what we do now. You put the corn in the ground and then you wait about five months or six months and then you harvest it. It's not labor intensive where you have to be touching the plant all the time, right? It's, it's not as labor intensive. Uh, and so, he, so Douglas's argument was, is that slavery naturally will not move west because it's a different kind of agriculture. The other argument he made is that when these Republicans keep, you know, they keep picking at the wound. If we just accept popular sovereignty, I think that the people will vote not to have slavery. I think it's probably, no, Douglas was uh, a, a vicious racist. 
but he probably wasn't really pro-slavery. In fact, if anything, he probably was basically opposed to slavery. And I think he really thought that if we just left things to a popular vote, the people as we expanded West would vote against slavery. And so we can keep slavery out. We can keep the agitation down. You know, he was very put out by Lincoln's house divided speech. Here's Lincoln agitating for civil war. House divided cannot stand. What kind of rhetoric is that? And if part free, part slave was good enough for our founders, it's good enough for me. Let's have peace and popular sovereignty is the way to peace. Lincoln's argument was um, partially again, partially practical. And I, and I think he was probably right on that. And there's been some economic theory written on this that really the kind of industry and agriculture that was going to expand West really was amenable to slavery. And there are some incidents, for example, of slaves working in factories uh, as you push further West, like in mines, for example, in mountains, working using slave labor. So the idea that in addition to the fact you really just want to leave natural right up to, you know, economic practicality. I don't think so. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And we should stick to that. But there, but there probably was uh, an indication that, as he put it, if, you know, if slavery can exist north of the wa- south of the Wabash, it can exist north of the Wabash. And the same thing in the West. If we allow slavery, it's going to go there. But the second thing is that again, Lincoln can just say, look at what's going on. Right. When we have popular sovereignty in Kansas, this is not peace. Right. This is bleeding Kansas. This is there was already, you know, Douglas is worried that we might have a civil war. And Lincoln's point is we basically have a civil war already in uh, in Kansas as the idea of popular sovereignty. What it has is these two, the the two factions, the pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions in Kansas were literally at war with each other. And you've already got blood being shed. And so the idea that popular sovereignty was the peaceful way to solve the slave problem was empirically false. Well, I think one one fascinating point you make in the book is that you point out that both of them would get furious at the other and claim that you're the radical one. You're the one that's destabilizing the country that Lincoln would say, well, this idea that you're you're unsettling the, you're, the Missouri Compromise and Douglas would respond, well, you're the one that's trying to crush our, our our inherent right to democracy, and that's 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 radical. And it was it was interesting they were accusing the other, saying, "I'm the more conservative one. I'm the one that's that's honoring the founding fathers." And you know, one of the things I, I you know I think when when uh, I listened to your interview with Lucas Morrell that you did recently, and I can encourage anyone who's listening to this to go back. And listen to the interview that Hope did with with Lucas Morrell. And Lucas has recently written a book. Both of us have the same publisher, Southern Illinois University Press. Mm-hmm. So huzzahs uh, to SIU Press Absolutely. Uh, for publishing both of these books. Um, but um, uh, Lucas said, uh, in in as I recall in that interview, and he's exactly right. One of the really remarkable things about the Lincoln Douglas debates is so much of it is a debate about the American founding. Uh, And both Lincoln and Douglas are doing an interpretation of the American founding. And so Douglas's argument was precisely, as I just just mentioned this, listen, at the American founding, when they're making the U.S. Constitution, part of the country was slave, part of the country was free. If it's if it's good enough for, for George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, you know, you, you name it, it's good enough for me. 
And here come these Republicans wanting to agitate about these things. And here comes Lincoln talking about house divided cannot stand. Uh, what's he talking about? These guys are the agitators, right? If we just allow popular sovereignty uh, to continue and we stop, you know, uh, you know, poking our southern uh, brethren in, you know, in, in the face, this thing can resolve itself and we can remain at peace if we just you know, rely on what he took to be the interpretation of the founding, which is we can exist with partially free, partially slave. This whole, again, the idea of house divided cannot stand. Um, we cannot survive either part free or part sl- slave. It will be either one thing or the other. That's just, that's just radical talk. And these abolitionists, these abolitionist Republicans uh, are a bunch of radicals. Some of them were for sure. Yeah. 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 You make the point that, that Douglas would say, well, you're just that they're stuck. Yeah, you are. You referred to it as a stocking horse for abolitionism and it, they were. So that was, well, was not- well, yes. Yeah, so, Cause of course Lincoln was not an abolitionist, but, 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 but part of there, there some Republicans were abolitionists. What I mean by that is not only did they not want slavery to expand, they wanted the federal government to use power to eradicate slavery where it already was. Um, and there were elements within the party that, uh, like Sam and Chase, for example, was, was very much more on that side of things. And, and it was in the interest of Douglas to try to um, align Lincoln uh, with the more radical parts of his party, of Lincoln's party, as well as, you know, Douglas made overt appeals to racism. You know, the number of times he called the Republicans the black Republicans mm-hmm. and making snide remarks of Frederick Douglass showing up at one of the debates with a white woman in the carriage. You know, wink, wink. We all know what that means, right? Playing on ancient prejudices. And so these guys are the radicals, right? They want amalgamation of the races. They want to abolish slavery everywhere. They are not consistent with with what the founders did. On the other hand, Lincoln says, right, um, Missouri Compromise is an ancient compromise, he called it. Why did we upset that compromise? That was a perfectly good compromise, and and Douglas uh, 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 repealed it. uh, Because Douglas was the author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act as the uh, chair of the Senate Committee on Territories. He authored the bill. Uh, and explicitly repeal the Missouri Compromise. Why can't we stick with that? As well as his argument was, is Douglas is making war with the founding ideals, right? Because Douglas basically had to say, uh, and he did say, the Declaration of Independence, when it says all men are created equal, and of course we know that they meant men and women, when they said all men are created equal, they didn't really mean it. They, what they really meant is all white men born in, you know, in America at the time. They didn't really mean everybody. And Lincoln says nobody had made that argument until you know, two years ago. Right? And now Douglas's argument forces us to, to make war with the very founding ideals of the country and what is an innovative, novel interpretation of the founding. He's breaking with the founding. Because he, his ideas are explicitly at war with the, the very principles of the Declaration of, of Independence. And then when he goes, again, you see this, especially in the Cooper Union Address, which, as I said, where he goes through like all the people who signed the Constitution, who ended up in the first Congress, and he, and he, and he shows overwhelmingly 
they voted to ban slavery in territories. Douglas's argument, one of his arguments was that Congress has no constitutional authority over slavery in the territories. And Lincoln is saying, look, we've got all these people who, who were at the Constitutional Convention who then went to Congress and voted to ban slavery in the territories. So they thought Congress had power over slavery in the territories. Again, Douglas, you are making war with founding ideals. You're the one who's making innovative, radical um, interpretations of the American founding. I'm the one, it's, it's in that Cooper Union address uh, of 1860 where, um, he, where Lincoln explicitly takes on the mantle of conservative, where he says, if conservative means the old and tried over the new and untried, we're the conservatives because the old and tried is the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, and everything we believe in is in harmony with uh, with those two great, and the, for Lincoln, he said at one point, right, the Declaration of Independence is the, is the golden apple in the frame of silver that is the Constitution, drawing this analogy from the Book of Proverbs. Uh, and we're the ones who are protecting the apple of gold in the frame of silver, and it's Douglas and the Democrats who are trying to destroy it. Hmm. Well, before we get on to more about revolutionary aspects of Lincoln or not, I just want to remind listeners at this point that we are talking today with John D. Schaff, author of the 2019 book, Abraham Lincoln's Statesmanship and the Limits of Liberal Democracy. And that's a nice segue, John, into the fact that you're talking about Lincoln's view of, of the founding. And, and you talk in the book and you take you go into great and fascinating length with the the, the thesis, you call it the McPherson thesis after yeah. the Princeton historian James McPherson's um, book that uh, that argued that Lincoln led a sec what's called the Second American Revolution, and I'd like to ask about that because recently Biden Joseph Biden were speaking as you said on Election Day, and he was refer he made a speech or reference to that I'm uh, we have to go back to the second founding and the second the, the Second American Revolution, and does it, it's kind of ironic to have a liberal Democrat quoting the one of the founders of, of yep. the of course he's everyone's Lincoln as we said at the beginning, yep. but. Could you discuss the, the McPherson? Then you you basically say it's just there's just not evidence for it. Yeah, I'd be argued, I guess. I, I didn't hear this quote by by Biden. I'm going to try to dig that up. Um, yeah, he gave a speech about maybe maybe two weeks ago or so where he's trying to associate himself with, with specifically with the second founding. So which, which he ascribes to Lincoln. Right. Is that yeah. that's the idea. OK. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, so, uh, and this is, you know, James McPherson wrote a book, and, you know, McPherson is a, is a great historian, and uh, I, I'm loath to disagree with him about something, but I'm going to disagree with him. And, and he's also, he's sort of a local hero. I'm sitting here in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and uh, James McPherson is from Jamestown, North Dakota, which is about oh. 90 miles, literally straight north of me on uh, Highway 280, uh, 281. Uh, so he's a Dakota boy. Um, but nonetheless, he wrote this book in the early 1990s called Abraham Lincoln in the Second American Revolution. And in some ways, he's, he's borrowing that notion from Charles Beard, the famous progressive, uh, you might even call him Marxist historian of the early 20th century. And the idea of the thesis is, is that Lincoln's presidency represents this radical transformation of America. And that is true in the sense of Lincoln, they argue, 
has this radical notion of equality. Uh, so this is the anti-slavery uh, ideas, which then eventually get um, uh, ensconced in law in the you know, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. The 14th and 15th, of course, um, uh, are after Lincoln's death. Um, but th those Civil War amendments reshape America by uh, re- uh, uh, repositioning the American regime towards the notion of equality as being the most important thing and government on the side of equality. The other thing that McPherson says is that there is this revolution in public policy that, and this is really, uh, this is a lot of what my, the second half of my book is about is what I call the domestic Lincoln, um, is in those Civil War Congresses, and almost all of it's in the, the first Congress, the 37th Congress, the first couple of years of the Civil War, not only are we fighting a civil war, but we get things like the Homestead Act is passed, uh, the Pacific Railroad Act, the Land-Grant College Act. There's a National Bank Act, a Legal Tender Act. So all these important pieces of public policy that end up really shaping um, America going into the future is the argument that again it's 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 so reconstituting or so repositioning the American regime as to constitute a second American revolution, and you know the second half of my book is is largely trying to rebut uh, this this theme. You know, in addition, that McPherson says that Lincoln was a principal architect. That's his phrase, a principal architect of this revolution. And, you know, I, I think that's not true. Uh, for one thing, you know, we could talk about it's obviously at some length, you know, three of those of those policies I just mentioned, the land policies, uh, Homestead Act, Land Grant College Act, and Pacific Railroad Act, really are, you know, it's not the government gaining power in those policies. If anything, it's the government giving power away. It's really just a distribution of government land. And then while well, Pacific Railroad Act is simply government infrastructure, of which there was plenty of precedent, but even the notion of equality, you know, and this is, and this is something you can, you can get out of, out of Jaffa and out of, out of Lucas Morell's new book. And uh, you look at R Richard Brookheiser's book, Founding Son. Lincoln really thought of himself, and I think accurately, I don't think it was just a conceit, I think it was accurate, that he was not... Uh, uh, starting a revolution or reinterpreting the American founding, he really saw it as he was vindicating founding principles. So you don't have to abstract or um, uh, uh, differentiate yourself from the American founding to make equality a, a, if not the central point of the regime. It's right there, as I just said, in the Declaration of Independence. And it's also implied in ideas of, of you know, in, in the Declaration of Independence, as well as all men are created equal. All governments are based on the consent of the governed, which carries within it a notion of equality. Again, whatever the differences that we do have, whatever inequalities that do exist, does not lead one part of the, of the regime to having the right to govern the other part or one group to govern another group without, without everybody's consent. Uh, there's a notion of equality that undergirds it. As well as, uh, you know, the, the, the public policy of, as I said, of the Civil War, a lot of it was simply giving power away. 
uh, a lot of it yeah, does not to create a, a, bourgeois, a bourgeoisie. It was trying to make oh, everyone yeah. as middle class as possible, and that's not a Marxist uh, aim. I mean, he, he was trying to make it so that everyone could be a, a lawyer in a small town and have a nice a nice life in terms of property and materialism and, <laughs> I mean, yeah. with the principle. I mean, to a certain extent, right? Although, although you do argue that that for him was was a way to become a more moral person in the end. But he felt that if you had a certain level of, of, of secure financial security, that then you could be a more moral person, right? Yeah. Well, it, part of it is, oh, what does it mean to be free? Um, and, you know, and the, the Whig party, and then as the Republican party emerges as a kind of inheritor of, of the Whig policy, plus obviously a much stronger, much more consistent anti-slavery message. But leaving aside the slavery part, the Whig Party, then ultimately the, the Republican Party, believes strongly in what is known as the right to rise. Mm. And this is the notion that where, whatever someone's station is at the beginning of life, they have the right to improve themselves and move up the economic ladder. And, and central to that, was the notion of free labor, that government policies should be oriented towards people being able to own their own labor and make profit by their own labor. And so the, as you sort of indicate, Hope, the ideal for the Whigs, and I think ultimately for Republicans, and you see this very much so in Lincoln in his uh, Wisconsin Agriculture Address of 1859, even look at, at his um, first annual message to Congress, has this kind of uh, strange digression into a discussion of what is it, what does free labor mean? And what Lincoln means by that is that free labor is the ownership of one's labor. Lincoln makes a distinction between what he calls free labor, wage labor, and slave labor. Slave labor is obviously unjust, right? And I won't even bother making that argument. Wage labor, where I work for somebody and that person gives me a wage, which is actually the labor that most of us engage in in our day. Lincoln obviously thinks that that is superior to slavery, but it's not per se free labor, right? In order to really be a free person, I should own my own labor, which means I should be an independent proprietor, like say a, a small farmer, a merchant, a lawyer, someone who owns his own business, or probably if we wanted to. Uh, uh, to apply this to more contemporary economic uh, situation, it would probably imply something like workplace democracy, that the workers would have some share. And you know, think of something like Costco, which is an, uh, which is an employee-owned company, uh, or someplace where like the, uh, some corporations do this, where the employees, like if it's, if it's a unionized business, the labor union gets a seat on the corporate board where the people where where you partake both of worker and capitalist right you both labor and you are a capitalist and and lincoln wants a society in which we maximize people's ability to do this and one of the ways to do this is land policy open up the west so people who want to go out and get their 160 acres and operate a farm and sort of, you know, be on your own, own your own labor. This is freedom. You might even think of uh, something like Pa Ingalls in the Little House books, right? <laughs> this is the model of Lincoln's free labor. 
of I'm going to set out and I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to go out to Dakota Territory. Ultimately, they end up in Dakota, Dakota Territory, right? And I'm going to homestead and I'm going to get this farm. And this is what it means for me to be free because I don't owe my labor to anybody else. I'm not under the control of anybody else. There's no slaveholder or no boss man that tells me what, what to do. Uh, I'm a free laborer. And, and, and so these public policies that we're talking about, especially the land policies specifically of the uh, Civil War, were meant to uh, promote this kind of labor. And this is completely consistent with uh, Lincoln's Whiggish notions of what it means to be a free laborer, to be a free person. Well, it's kind of interesting. I was going to ask you about the, the modern Republican Party in that there's, they seem to be kind of groping towards a, a, a sort of return to Lincoln's idea in, in, in the terms of land or in ter- I'm sorry, in terms of economic policies that Marco Rubio yeah. and Worth are yep. saying. I think we you're need right. To be the, the sm- and it, that's, that's kind of an interesting they're, they're saying big business as Republican Party became in the 1880s under Grant and so ironically undergrad who was very much of the of the, the the frontier west middle west as, as Lincoln was but he oversaw the of course the graft era but but that's it's, it's ironic because Lincoln himself was after all a corporate lawyer he was a railroad lawyer which is which later was de- that profession was demonized for yep. being the you know, tool of the right so uh, the, you know uh, you know Lincoln once said I don't believe in any law against a man getting rich. Um, and you're right. He did, as a lawyer, he worked for railroads. He worked for large agricultural interests uh, as a lawyer. But I think at its heart, you know, if, if you go to the to to the book, um, uh, you know, I, I make an argument in there because, of course, Lincoln died obviously before industrialization really hit America hard, so to speak, right? Um, and I. Th- one of the shortcomings I would say of Lincoln is I don't really think he anticipated uh, the idea of national, I'll I'll caricature the late 19th century a little bit, the idea of robber barons and the centralization of wealth and kind of our stereotypes of, of Andrew Carnegie and U S steel and Rockefeller and uh, standard oil and your, you know, JP Morgans and, and these sorts of folks. Um, that centralization of, of wealth. I think, in, and I make the argument that there, there were economic theorists that, that Lincoln read who did live to see the Industrial Revolution and did not like it. And, and really the ideal was um, uh, a, a medium-sized town with a, with a middle class uh, of, of shop owners, of small factories, of like family-owned businesses. That really was... The ideal. Now, what you see, of course, over time is, as you're, you're, you're saying, Hope, is the Republican Party becomes sort of a corporate party. And that seems to have held true for a long time. I was in a part of that, I think, is a caricature. But it's, you know, most caricature. What is a caricature? You take something that's true and you exaggerate it. So there's obviously there's some truth uh, to the idea of the Republicans. You think of the the. Uh, the, the phrase, the country club Republican. What does that mean? It's probably some corporate banker sitting at the country club playing golf. And, you know, this is the stereotype of the Republican Party. And there's uh, enough truth in that, uh, uh, that, that you know, we, we can't dismiss it. But what and is happening? Donald, Donald Trump, the Jack, the man who worships Andrew Jackson, was overthrowing the country club establishment Republicans. Exactly. 
and yeah. so you know in fact i you know if people are curious I, I write regularly for a website called front porch republic and i wrote an essay kind of building on marco rubio gave a speech i almost want to say i think it was at catholic university if i recall um with uh i think he what what's his phrase for uh c- compassionate capitalism i forget what he calls it now but the, but the idea is and this is sort of i think the best of the trump revolution so to speak and i think other kind of kind of um less polarizing if you will figures uh are are looking to this because because what they've grasped is that that you know so you know, what is Mitt Romney if not the stereotype of the country club republican and uh there's a shift in the republican party that maybe is paying more attention to to working class lower educated and by lower educated i just mean no not no not college degrees certainly not advanced degrees and how do how do we become a party of kind of regular people giving them opportunities instead of being a party of corporate um, wealthy professional elites? And one of the ironies of our time, you know, we think of you know, for for your lifetime, hope in my lifetime, and the stereotype has been the Democrats are the working class party, and the the Republicans are the business class party. And over the last two presidential elections, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden have, by, I don't know, tenfold, twentyfold outraised uh, Donald Trump uh, from Wall Street financial uh, sectors of the economy. Big Tech tech Silicon Valley is is completely on the side of the Democratic Party, Wall Street. Uh, Joe Biden says, uh, I'm the candidate of Wall Street, not Scranton. I'm sorry, I'm the party. I'm the candidate of Scranton, not Wall Street. Well, Wall Street thinks you're their candidate uh, by their by their donations, uh, anyway. And so there well, does seem to be this shift going on, and whether how that survives or how that uh, plays itself out post Trump uh, is going to be interesting because uh, I think you're going to see a fight in the Republican Party between those who kind of maintain the 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 stereotypical emphasis on business and corporate America and those, and you, you see, you know, Marco Rubio is one of these, Josh Hawley from Missouri is, is one of these who are making overtures towards a different, more populist, uh, you know, uh, working class Republican party. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, whether post-Trump happens immediately or four years from now, because as we record this, we don't know what's going to happen. But it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Well, it's interesting too because in your book you discuss the the economic theory associated with G.K. Yep. G.K. Chesterton distributism, mm-hmm. and I think that's it's fascinating because I wonder if many of these Catholic intellectuals, like Saurabh Amari and Adrian Bermule, will, yeah. will they haven't really been using they've been they haven't they, if they could work with Tucker Carlson to create sort of this pan-Christian <laughs> distributism. Yep. It's, 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 it's a, the trouble with distributism is so closely connected with Catholicism that I don't know yeah. how much. And also, it, it just doesn't, it, I don't know that it's worn very well. It seems a little simplistic. Pretty well, sim- yeah, I, quite- I think, you know, when, when I write about it in, in the book, um, and when I, you know, I've written about this, like I say, on this, on this website, uh, Front Porch Republic, um, is... I don't want to give a brief for distributism. No, and, and well, I should probably we should probably define this at least a little bit. Yeah, that would be helpful. Um, I think distributism is 
uh, an economic theory. It is closely aligned with Catholic social thought. I don't, it's not the same, but it's closely aligned because it comes out of, there's a papal encyclical from Leo Thirteenth in the late 19th century called Rerum Novarum that really spurs this. You can get Catholic intellectuals in the, the early 20th century like Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. And the idea, as the name suggests, is that a just economic system is one that distributes um, property as widely as possible. And, and by this, they don't just mean property like I own a house, but they really mean sort of what we would kind of, you know, in Marx's terms, you would call the means of production, right? People own their own businesses, own their own property, and make money off their own property, as opposed to capitalism, which they say leads to a centralization of power into uh, an elite, into a financial elite, into a capitalist elite, or socialism, which concentrates power into the government, which then, which then manages property on behalf of a, of a government or bureaucratic elite. The, the, the middle way or third way is the idea that property um, productive property should be distributed as widely as possible. In this why I, I tie this to Lincoln because I think this is this is very akin to what Lincoln is talking about when he's talking about uh, free labor. Now, I do think that it's virtually impossible to take distributist economic thinking and translate that immediately into, to a certain extent, you might say the ship has sailed. We're not going to have a distributist kind of uh, medieval economy of yeoman workers, yeoman farmers, and uh, uh, you know, small businesses all over the place. Uh, that um, that oh, in small manufacturing all over the place, uh, like you know, in the early 20th century, there was a time in probably around 1910 when there was something like you know 100 or 150 automobile companies in America. Well, obviously the, that very quickly consolidated into three. Well, I don't think we're going back to 150. Uh, I don't think that's yeah, very Yeah, there was real. kind of the, the dream of the last yeah. 10 years was uh, Kickstarter. You know, if I just yeah. raise $10,000 on Kickstarter, I'll be, have this capitalist empire. And I, I, I don't even, I haven't vis- visited Kickstarter in years. I wonder if it's, if, that, I'm, if that's I'm sure still it exists, but, yeah. but, but the idea that we're going to reshape our economy into a distributist model, even that that would be, that would be a, that would be a good thing, I think is a real question. But what I do think is that we can take certain principles uh, from distributive thought. And one is, is that economics, I think you can get this out of Lincoln. Economics is a political and moral venue. And so the purpose of an economy should not simply be maximization of wealth, but how do we treat people? How does an economy treat people? What, how does it shape the character of the people? Um, and, an economy which is based on the vast majority of us going to work for someone else is not consistent with the free people. And what I see in some of these movements in Republican slash conservative circles is the idea uh, of the dignity of labor. And can we give, instead of having an economy, an economic policy which is geared towards you know, maximization of GDP 
and the stock market and the financial industry, how does that work for your average worker? And can there be economic policy that encourages you know, a, a responsiveness uh, to um, the average laborer and can create, create an economy which is, I don't know, more, more humane uh, mm. for the average, uh, average laborer? And and treats them maybe with with more more dignity than an economy that says um, you know as long as you have a job you should be happy um, you know how we go about that right if if labor is the primary source of value right well um, I was just going to say ap- go apropos of oh I was going to say apropos of, this leads me to the question of you, you discuss how Lincoln is claimed by progressives of many eras, for example, particularly during the progressive era of, of the of the late of the early well, circa 1918 or so, and then again with FDR and so forth. But the, the irony was that Lincoln was he, he he was interested in making banks stronger, not necessarily work. I mean, because but 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 he believed in banking because banking would be a tool that would enable people to to save and become frugal and, and rise again. Yeah, and this right? is, you know, like I said, this is exactly what, when, when Hamilton is writing about banking or even you know, manufacturers in uh, the early Republic, the idea is, is that, you know, there's obviously, there's a strong affinity from, uh, from what I'm saying uh, about Lincoln with the Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer. The Jeffersonian ideal, the yeoman farmer, why is for Jefferson that the foundation of a free society? Why are these the chosen people? The people who work the land are the chosen people of God, he famously said. Um, Precisely because a a farmer is independent, right? A farmer can grow his own food. A farmer has the ability to fix his own machine here. I'm up here on the South Dakota Plains. I know lots of farmers. I have good friends who are farmers. They're very industrious. They can fix things. Um, You know, a friend of mine uh, once who was working uh, in in, in, for a government agency was doing planning on uh, was helping uh, rural counties in South Dakota do emergency planning. And so she went to one of these rural counties and she surveyed. Uh, a bunch of these farmers, and the question was, if if power went out, how long could you survive? And the uh, number one answer was indefinitely, hmm. right? Because they, they have, well, I've got my own generator, I've got my own food, I've got my own machinery, I know how to, you know, I know how to do things. If I'm hungry, I know how to hunt, I know how to make my own clothes, and this is why. Whereas the rest of us, so the electricity's out for five minutes, and we're slitting each other's throats. Uh, how am I going to power my phone? How can I survive without my phone? <laughs> and for Lincoln and Jefferson, that's a kind of dependency, right? If I'm dependent upon other people for the necessities of life, am I really a free person? Well, Hamilton's point, and I think Lincoln buys that, if you want small businessmen, right? The, the, the argument that Hamilton and Lincoln have against Jeffersonianism is, well, not everybody wants to be a farmer. And not everybody has the ability to be a farmer. Uh, I'm trying to think. It's quoted in the book. I can't think of who it was. Was it? it was, I think it's. It was it Mark Neely, the Lincoln scholar. Mark Neely, who's. I think it was him, who said Lincoln did not have an agrarian bone in his body. You no, know, Lincoln was, of course, raised by a notoriously bad farmer, 
and Thomas Lincoln, something of a ne'er-do-well, I must say. And his, his father would often uh, hire Lincoln out to work on, when Lincoln was, was quite, was really young, he would send his son off to, to local farms to make money, right? Lincoln would be a laborer and then his dad would get the money from it. And Lincoln figured out pretty early, he hated farm work, right? Well, we don't, the, so how do we get an, an economy? Well, Hamilton says we need a diversity in our economy, not just farming. It's good for the economy and it's good for freedom because people have various skills and various interests. Yeah, it's interesting how the land-grant colleges were founded to be yes. agricultural centers, and then they really became liberal arts colleges and research universities and everything under the sun. But, but that probably would have pleased Lincoln because they were not primarily agricultural necessarily. Well, and what, what they, well, even as an agriculture, what a land-grant college is, is designed to do is you know, to even on the agriculture side, help our farmers become more productive. Can we think of new productive ways to do agriculture? which is something Lincoln talks about in his agricultural address. But, he, but he, be that as it may, um, if we're going to have a diverse economy where people of various talents, various interests are going to uh, uh, take part, are going to uh, take part in this right to rise and the right, you know, this, and, and really have this dignified free labor, well, then we need to have banks that we can go to to finance our endeavors. We need to have roads that we can transport our goods and services on. We need to improve our rivers and harbors. And so it was the Whigs who were, in for, who were for internal improvements, who were for banking, who were for tariffs to protect uh, uh, domestic industry against foreign competition. And it was, it was the Jacksonians, whatever you know, their, their views of, uh, of corporate elites, so to speak, and of the common man. It was the Jeffersonians and then the Jacksonians who were opposed to banks, who were opposed to internal improvements, who were opposed to you know, improvements of rivers and harbors, these sorts of things. And the, 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 the Hamiltonians and then the Whigs and then the Republicans believed that there were various public policies that, that government could, uh, could uh, promulgate that would encourage uh, and and uh, that would help encourage the average Americans to be able to exercise this right to free labor, so I can start my own business, have it be profitable, and like something, something like a railroad is a, is a is a perfect example. You can come out here to the Dakotas, start a shop, and you can ship goods in. The farmers can put their goods on that train, ship them back to the east. And you can you can exercise that right to rise and that right to free labor out here because the infrastructure is here by government program to to allow people to live in a place like what eventually became South Dakota and and be able to have that kind of uh, of free labor experience whether it's as a farmer or a, a lawyer or a merchant owner. A, uh, a small uh, a small factory owner, whatever it might be, you can do that because government has promoted certain kinds of infrastructure and certain kinds of financial systems that allow you uh, to do that. Although we, we might want to talk about how that that is very different from the progressive ideal uh, of the early 20th century that, that you talked about. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was just thinking as you were speaking about about the right to rise and just the, the four different presidents I was thinking of that 
Herbert Hoover was orphaned in, in Iowa and sent out to Oregon, and he became really a self-made man. That Obama made fun of the whole idea of the self-made man. I thought, there are self-made men. Hoover, Hoover was. My grandfather was. You know, it's just, it's, both of my grandfathers were. And it's just, it's just you know, the idea of scoffing at that is sad because it, it, the idea that, well, there, there's no such thing. Well, there, there can be for people, and it is an admirable thing that people are able to do that. And, and you know, but I was just the- thinking... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. That the idea of the self-made man. It's interesting that you uh, that you use that phrase. If you pick up um, uh, Daniel Walker's Daniel Walker Howe's book on on the Whigs, he has a whole chapter on there about the idea, the Whig idea of the self-made man. That Mm -hmm. terminology was important uh, to Whig ideology, and in some ways that term that we use now, the self-made man, was promoted and that that idea enters into the American lexicon by the Whigs, right? Of which, of course, then Lincoln is an inheritor of this of this ideology. And one of the differences then with progressives, you know, the progressives of the early 20th century, of course, had seen, oh, let's say 30, 40 years of economic centralization. Uh, that we all, I, I talked about with you know the rise of industrialization, things like uh, Standard Oil, U.S. Steel, that sort of thing, and the progressives looked at that and thought that was the natural course of history, the natural course of history of economic history, uh, and sort of in, in a quasi uh, Marxist view of thing that like, as if history and economic history is going in a particular direction, um, the course of things is to centralization. And if and if the economy is going to centralize, then government must centralize itself to then use centralized economy for the good of the people. And so you, if you look at, say, the ideology of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you look at his, you know, and I cite this in the book when I talk about the Commonwealth Club address of Yeah, that was really chilling. I was really, I yeah. think people should read that because it was really, it was scary. <laughs> it was so, a very, yeah. Yeah, well, well, Douglas or Douglas Roosevelt is making an interpret a riff, you might say, off of Frederick Jackson Turner's famous frontier thesis. So Frederick Jackson Turner, this Wisconsin historian of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, says there was a time when Americans got sick of where they were; they could always push the frontier, but mm. the frontier is closed, and those pioneering days are over. And Roosevelt adopts this idea. And he says, well, the frontier's closed. We have to deal with things as they are. Centralization is the wave of the future. And, and Roosevelt does not think that centralized economic power is a problem. He just thinks it's a natural thing that we have to deal with and then manage. That's why he, he has that phrase, you know, the day of enlightened administration has come, right? <laughs> we need enlightened bureaucrats to manage a centralized economy on behalf of the people. Right. And we're, the, and we're seeing that in spades now during the coronavirus. Listen to the experts, listen to the, yeah. <laughs> the scientists and without question. And it's, it's, it's right. It's, it's, well, I remember seeing a tweet that someone said when Biden said, listen to scientists. He said, your job as administrators to listen, but not to to kowtow necessarily. I mean, absolutely. the whole idealization so, of, of Fauci and so forth. The idea of, of listen to the science, which in some cases is the smart and prudent move, but the thing about scientists is that they are human beings too. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't imagine that scientists, when they put on their, their, their white lab coat, 
no longer have politics, no longer have interests, no longer have egos. Uh, have, have a, you put on the white coat and it's like your white baptismal garment and now you're free of original sin somehow uh, because, because you're a scientist. So they, they can, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of literature on this, whether it's Frankenstein or Brave New World or what have you, that I think should educate or Dr. Heidegger's experiment from uh, uh, um, uh, or uh, uh, the birthmark from Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, stories uh, should educate us on on this. But you know, but for the progressives, their notion was that you know Woodrow Wilson, maybe the uber progressive, is Woodrow Wilson, and Woodrow Wilson is. Our, our only PhD ever to be president. His PhD was in political science. May we may we never have another one. Um, <laughs> and I say that as someone uh, who has a PhD in political science. Uh, may we never have another one. Uh, and Wilson, amongst all the you know, lots of things that he did in his life, was one of the founders of the field of public administration. And so mm-hmm. Wilson believed that. Uh, the way uh, a, a modern democratic society should be governed is you have a president who is representative, who captures sort of a Rousseauian general will of the people. He has that famous line that the people crave a single leader, right? When the, uh, well, when I, I tell you, when I, I just did this recently in my presidency class, I read this passage out of Wilson. And whenever I do it, I turn on Wagner's uh, Ride of the Valkyries <laughs> and I and I shout it out in a thick German accent um, uh, of the people crave a single leader. When the president uh, rightly determined the will of the people, he is irresistible, uh, says, <laughs> says Wilson. And, and it should chill us slightly. And so so Wilson's view is that the president um, kind of captures the, the, the will of the people. But then that will is administered through bureaucrats who are educated in the field of uh, public administration and scientifically manage society. And, you know, I, this is, I think, a, a inimical to Lincoln's uh, governing ideas of the idea of a, uh, uh, of a free people governing themselves um, exercising their right to consent, exercising their natural rights. And it's in a simple trust in the average person to basically govern themselves with, without having to succumb to a rule of centralized experts. Because part of that, you know, with Wilson is Wilson had a, I, you know, I said that, that, that Lincoln took as you know, his morning star was the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Um, Wilson and the progressives had a principled rejection of the U.S. Constitution, a principled rejection of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, now, Wilson famously said about separation of powers that no good government had ever been founded out of antagonisms. He did not believe in centralization of uh, uh, separation of powers. He believed in centralization of powers. Unlike Madison, who believed that you know self-interest was something that government needed to deal with and manage. Uh, Wilson thought that experts could overcome their self-interest and we could have scientific management of, of society. Uh, yeah, Wilson, you quote in the book Herbert Coley when very, yeah. again, chillingly, it's, it's really, really creepy. That, and, that, and to think that the New Republic is still going. Is, yes, uh, it's a shell of its former self, but it's still sort of in publication. Well, well Herbert Crowley, in his book, Progressive Democracy, 
talks about the tyranny of the word, the tyranny of the word. And the word that he's talking about, and it's capital W, all right? It's not scripture. He means the U.S. Constitution. He thinks mm. that the Constitution is a tyrannical document that we have to overcome in order to have a real progressive democracy. And that's when, when Wilson kind of coins the term, uh, the living constitution, what he's trying to do is reinterpret the constitution as this document that means whatever we want it to mean. Because after all, Hope, if, if you're going to, in, in kind of regular science, I'm talking like, you know, a chemist in a lab, we don't want them tied down uh, to these restrictive rules and precedent and due process. We want them to experiment. So when, you know, Franklin Roosevelt said, this is the era of bold and persistent experimentation. And so we need the social scientists to have bold, persistent experimentations on the American people. And, and that's what governs society. And so Lincoln was dedicated to natural rights and uh, government of rule of law and of the Constitution. But progressives had a principled rejection of natural rights and of the Constitution as being too limiting on the ability of government to experiment, as well as simply being antiquated notions from the past that we who are enlightened by modern science, especially Darwinian science, know better than to be tied down to a mechanical Newtonian view of man, a new, a me mechanical Newtonian view of government. And we need a living biological Darwinian government that just goes where evolution goes. And the irony is that Wilson is being, statues of him are being torn down and, and or schools like Princeton, the school yep. was being re, was renamed and his name was. But but ironically, the, the left is now are adopting many of his ideas and saying, well, we have to rethink this whole fuddy duddy, stodgy constitution thing. And it's not really relevant to us in our glorious, enlightened period. <laughs> and it's, well, it's, yeah, if, it's, if it's so much of what we see now uh, in sort of radical it's, it's politics is a rejection. It's not even radical. It's being mainstreamed at this yeah. point. Um, well, sure. Yeah. Um, well, for now, I'll call it radical. Um, yeah, right, right. It is radical, um, but I, but yeah. It, well, it's it's a it's a principled rejection of the American founding to the point of iconoclasm. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, for, forget Wilson. You know, well, well, they, the other day at uh, the University of Wisconsin, this yeah, the students voted to take down Abraham Lincoln as a white <laughs> supremacist, which I guess shows you what they know about Abraham Lincoln, um, yeah. which apparently isn't much. But this, I or you know people talking about taking out statues of Washington or Jefferson uh, because they were slaveholders. There's this principled argument against, or you think of, of the idea of the 1619 project of the New York times, this radical reinterpretation of the American founding. Now I'm not sure how much Woodrow Wilson would ascribe to the 1619 project because Wilson himself was a, was a vicious racist. Um, but Nonetheless, I, you know, he shared with them this, a kind of contempt for the political science of the American founding. Um, and in that, the progressives of the, of the early 20th century and the, the I guess if, if you could call them the nouveau progressives uh, of, of today or the radicals uh, of today share that notion that the political science of the American founding should be re rejected. And in some cases, I think they'd agree on why is that there's a, a lack 
of patience with the process uh, and the institutions that the American Constitution sets out to try to shape majorities into deliberative, thoughtful majorities instead of rule of the mob. And I think today's uh, pro uh, progressives and the progressives of the early 20th century probably share that view in common. And to that extent, they find themselves, I think, at odds with the political science of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, you make the point in the book that Lincoln was very concerned about mob rule and vote and wrote or, or spoke about it very uh, uh, powerfully and said that this is this this is the, the end of civilization if we allow this it can happen any any cited cases that you cite of people that were weren't even slaves they were just mis mistaken identity cases and people were lynched and, and he was but I think of him with the what's happening in Portland you know this mindless havoc mm -hmm. wreck, wreaking. <laughs> To, to no point. Um, well, but I would like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me say one thing about, uh, about mob rule is one of the, uh, if there's a good thing that has come out of the uh, civic unrest of the last six months or so is I've seen more citations of Lincoln's Lyceum address uh, than in probably the previous 10 years. Uh, oh, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah. As I, in fact, uh, just uh, today on the law and Liberty website, there's an essay by James Caesar and Joseph Lecomte, which, uh, which references uh, the Lyceum Address. And when Lincoln says, you know, the, the in some ways the mob is democratic. It is a kind of voice of the people. But, but the mob is a threat to democracy uh, precisely because it is one, it is indiscriminate. It gets, the, it gets the innocent along with the guilty. And we've seen plenty of instances of that uh, mm -hmm. over the uh, last six months or so. It encourages what Lincoln calls the um, the lawless in spirit to be lawless in fact. All mm. of us uh, have a yeah, kind of yeah. That's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. All of us have a kind of lawlessness in it. Right? There's a degree in, in all of us. If we look into our hearts, you know, if if we could stick our hand into the cookie jar and get the cookie without being caught, we're more likely to do it. And if we see yes, other, um, go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's like, yeah, it's being norm not not just normalized, but lionized and valorized. Well, this the, is the, my the brave point. young people, yeah. Yeah, is is if I see other people sticking their hands into the cookie jar and getting away with it, I go, well, why don't I stick my hand in the cookie jar? Because apparently we can just steal cookies and nobody cares. And so that's what I what I mean and what Lincoln means by it encourages a lawless in spirit to become lawless in fact. Um, mm -hmm. And then lastly, he says. Law, mob rule discourages the good man because seeing his property destroyed and people's rights violated, he says, what good is this democracy if it can't protect property? And we see this in our day. Well, maybe we should have authoritarianism. At, at least it would it would defend our property. Um, and I think people really could should go back to that. You know, it's, it's all over the place. You can certainly find it online if you just look up Lincoln's Lyceum Address of 1838. I think it's it's very much alive uh, in in our day. It's very relevant to our day. What he has to say. Well, your book is certainly relevant. I've learned a lot from it, and I, I really recommend it. It's it's a it's a good take on on at the end. You you make clear that we just need uh, to calm down, <laughs> to be rational people, and to articulate moral moral precepts that are fairly easy to follow. Yeah, well, I, I but, think we we really lack 
moderate and prudent statesmanship in, you know, what I mean, it really, especially the moderation is what we really could use, I think, in our day is um, an appreciation of civility and the notion that um, these people I'm disagreeing with are my fellow citizens. And um, when I disagree with people, you know, really what it is, is most of us are aiming for some kind of good. And we have disagreements over the, over those goods. Like I say, uh, moderation is about competing goods. And some people might put a different emphasis on this good, and I put a different emphasis on, on the other good. And what, what a moderate statesman does is tries to uh, rhetorically show that he, even amongst those he disagrees with, what is the limited justice in what they argue? And you see this in Lincoln. Like I said, my favorite Lincoln speech is the Peoria Address of 1854, the address on the repeal of the Lincoln Douglas or of the uh, Missouri Compromise. Uh, and Lincoln, at a couple of times in, in, the, in, in that speech, says, You know, Southerners, I, I assent that you have legal rights. I don't do so hesitantly. I do, I do so enthusiastically that you have certain rights. And he says, you know, if, if we were in your position, uh, we, would, we would have your views. If you were in our position, you would have our views. He's trying to breed, breed sympathy, right? Here's what you say that I can agree with. And, you know, and when is, you see this in the second inaugural, when this is all over, we have to be civil to each other. Or in the first inaugural, right? We cannot be en- enemies. We must be friends. And so, what my probably my favorite Lincoln line of all time, uh, certainly my top three, is in the Washington Temperance Address of 1842. He says, "If you would win a man to your side, you must first convince him that you are his friend." And we don't do that by denouncing people. If I want you to agree with me, if I want you to persuade me, if I want my side to win, to per, if I want to persuade you, I don't do that by calling you names and by insulting you or by questioning your motives and saying you're corrupt or stupid or whatever it is. I have to do that by showing you that I mean well by you. And we have uh, precious little of that in, in our politics today. Yeah, I, I, I kept thinking as Joseph Biden was lecturing, pontificating about he was the decent man. And he was meanwhile calling Trump a clown and Ger- Goebbels. He was comparing him to Joseph Goebbels. And I just thought, OK. But, or a uh, virus. Uh, he called he called Trump the real virus the other day. And whatever you oh, think yeah. of, of Donald Trump and my opinions are, are mixed, to say the least. Um, but, uh, you know, it, Call Donald Trump what you will, but when you call Donald Trump a virus, you are by implication calling the again. We're we're talking here on election day, and somewhere around sixty to sixty-five million people are going to vote for Donald Trump today. And when you're calling those people a virus, you know, and I even mentioned this in in the book because I'd written the book after the 2016 election. Obviously, when Hillary Clinton is saying that Donald Trump voters are deplorables, a mm. basket of irredeemable deplorables. Uh, and this is not a brief for or against Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or what have you, but nonetheless, you're someone who wants to be president of the United States and you're calling, you know, 45% of the American public deplorable. Uh, that's not really the rhetoric of statesmanship that, that we need. And, um, and we, we maybe could learn from that mistake. 
Very well said. I had I had a bought a button once to the county for it said I'm an adorable deplorable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's not call each other deplorables. That's absolutely well, John. I've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like to ask you now. This is the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? I was, I was hoping it was going to be what is my favorite ice cream, but I'll go with that one. <laughs> um, but you know, what I'm working at, well, I've got various things, but actually, my next book project. Uh, which uh-huh. is going? Tell us it's oh, it's going slowly at this point. So don't look for it anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> is I've actually started a book on um, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Lincoln, and it sort of is working on this idea. As I've been thinking about this for a while, and it really came from for a long time. I've been looking at Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And I thought, you know, Lincoln really is a synthesis of the best of the anti-federalists and the best of the federalists. And then I sort of, I wrote a thing. I was down at a conference at Mercer College down in Macon, Georgia. A, a friend of mine, a grad school buddy of mine runs this conference down there at Mercer. And it be, it's become a book, uh, that, that conference that people can, it's called uh, uh, From Reflection and Choice. It includes this, this essay I have in there about Lincoln as a synthesis of anti-federalist and federalist thought. Then I thought, you know, what I should do, if I was going to expand this, I wouldn't do federalist, anti-federalist. I thought, well, what's a proxy for that? You know, the federalist idea is sort of encapsulated in Hamiltonian thought, and the anti-federalist idea is sort of encapsulated in Jeffersonian thought. So maybe I could write a book that has Lincoln as a sort of synthesis of the best of both Hamilton and Jefferson, um, and that's sort of, that's what I'm working on now. And a lot, some of what we're talking about with economics is going to be uh, a big part of that, but even ideas of presidential power and of natural rights and, uh, and these sorts of things, I think are going to go into that book, maybe, uh, president as, as a war leader. Um, these sorts of things are what I'm going to be, going to be writing about and including, I think, you know, um, uh, the, this conversation we're having about progressives, you know, Herbert Crowley, who we mentioned, once said that his um, his governing theory was, uh, he called it uh, Jeffersonian ends using Hamiltonian means. So that sounds like a synthesis of Hamiltonianism and Jeffersonianism. And of course, I want to argue that Lincoln's synthesis is very different from, from Crowley's synthesis and that, that Lincoln gets it right <laughs> and Crowley does not. Um, uh, Lincoln's synthesis is a better synthesis than, uh, than, than Crowley's. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the next, the next book project that I'm working on. But, but as I say, don't, don't expect it anytime soon because, uh, I'm quite busy, uh, with that unless unless I get a sabbatical soon and I might, but it's going to be a, a, it's going to be a sabbatical, uh, project that I'm going to have to, I've done a lot of the reading, but writing is very hard for me to do while I, I, while I'm teaching all these classes. And if, if these darn students would just go away, Hope, uh, I would get so much done. <laughs> the, well, the, pro- the problem, you the problem you is I wouldn't have a job. But <laughs> Well, you mentioned before we got started, uh, before we started recording, that you mentioned that you're very active in uh, public radio and yeah. and, yeah. and the commentator, and you'll be very busy for the next several months. We'll yeah, see. Well, yeah, well, this election, so I've got a busy week this week with this election stuff, and we'll, we'll see uh, – uh, where it goes from th- from there, and I am I'm a regular contributor on our uh, South Dakota Public Radio, uh, and that doesn't take up a ton of my time, but it's uh, but every three or four weeks I'm I'm on there, 
talking about political stuff, usually South Dakota political stuff, but sometimes national political stuff. So I'm, I'm never oh, bored. Right. That's for sure. Well, I want to encourage people to Google your name as well, because there are several videos of, of, mm-hmm. of seeing some lectures you've given that were very yep. helpful to, to yep. me. So, so these are pretty, just Google John Schaff. And I, with that, I will thank the scholar we've been talking to today, John D. Schaff, author of the book, Abraham Lincoln, Statesmanship and the Limits of Liberal Democracy. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.